Again, if you're new here today, we're preaching a sermon series through discipleship stories, and each week we get to pick a disciple of Jesus and learn lessons about what it means for us to be a disciple of Jesus. And as you know, as a church, we're a disciple-making church. And, uh, and so I get the privilege today of sharing um, the life and story of Peter. Now, um, if I were to ask you one of the disciples of Jesus, if, if you could name it, chances are Peter would be the first on your mind, and I think rightly so, because the disciple of Peter is a towering figure in the New Testament. So many of the stories that we have of Jesus interacting with His disciples include Peter. In fact, Peter was one of the first disciples that Jesus called when He was walking along the Sea of Galilee, and Peter was one of the three of Jesus' inner circle that followed Him everywhere He went, Peter, James, and John. And when I think about the stories of Peter, so many stories come to mind. For me, come, the, the one comes to mind is the transfiguration, when Peter is with Jesus and he sees him in his glory and he says, this is so awesome, we got to just camp out here on this mountaintop. And another story is when Peter, of course, is walking on the water, when he sees Jesus walking and out of all of the other disciples, he says, Jesus, if that's you out there, then call me out into the water. And he hears and he And he gets out of the boat and he walks on water, a testament of the life of faith. So many stories of Peter. Of course, there's the one where Peter gets rebuked by Jesus and where he's called Satan. Get behind me, Satan. There's a story of uh, of Peter refusing to have Jesus wash his feet. And of course, the most famous story of all, right? When Peter denies Jesus three times on three separate occasions to save his own skin. These are all great stories of Peter. But the stories of Peter don't end there because Peter is the one who runs to the empty tomb. Peter is the one who hauls in this miraculous catch of fish. And of course, the most beautiful story of them all is when Peter is reinstated by Jesus after denying him three times. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, I do. I do. Yes, Jesus, I do love you. Then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Shepherd them. Teach them. Care for them. Lead them. This is your calling. Such great stories of Peter. And if that wasn't enough, there's Peter at Pentecost who preaches a sermon where 5,000 are added to the church that day. Half of the book of Acts is just dominated by Peter, where on one occasion we see Peter obeying the Holy Spirit, going into the house of Cornelius, witnessing the Holy Spirit falling on Gentiles, and becoming a key apostle who makes the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church something to be celebrated rather than to be mourned at the Council of Jerusalem. Peter was a major influence as a disciple of Jesus, as an apostle of Christ, 
as the first bishop of Rome, and as the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church, according to tradition. He even has a beautiful church named after him in the Vatican, St. Peter's Basilica. The story of Peter is a stuff of legends. But if there's one story that I want us to hear and focus on today and capture our imaginations of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's a story of when Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ. Because it was this moment when Peter makes this profession where he discovers the truth and the calling of identity. And it's in that discovery where we see the trajectory of his life take a new turn. And if we hear this story, enter into this story, we might even find that our own lives are changed in its trajectory and respond in a new way. Come and follow me. This story comes in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. And because you've been listening for a while, I'm going to ask you to read this out loud, as loud as you can, uh, with me. You can see the words on the screen? All right, let's do it. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was a Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you know what to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this story, there's three lessons about discipleship that revolves around three questions that Jesus asks directly or indirectly. And these three questions are this, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the second question is, who do I say that you are? And the third question is, who am I calling you to be? These three questions are three ways of getting us to learn this one critical lesson about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and it's the question and the issue of identity. Who is Jesus? Who are we in relation to Jesus? And who are we in relation to all the other disciples and in relation to His mission? Who is Jesus? Who am I? And who are we as the church And how we decide and how we answer those questions will, I think, determine the trajectory of our lives. And so the very first question Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? This is a really deeply personal and thought-provoking question, and it's really a question that's designed to disrupt 
and get to the core of what we believe about Jesus. Who do you say that I am? And this question can either be entirely confrontational or deeply comforting depending on where you're coming from. And it can inevitably leave you vulnerable and exposed. But I love how Jesus takes his disciples there. He doesn't go there right away, but he asks a preliminary question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? What's the word on the street? What's going viral in Galilee about me? And this is, I think, a brilliant way of engaging his disciples into a deeper understanding of who he is because it's actually a very safe and non-confrontational question. It gets his disciples to consider all of the popular opinions that are out there and uh, of, of what's being said about Jesus and to help his disciples navigate all these popular ways of thinking about Jesus' identity. Well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Still others say one of the prophets. Essentially what they're saying is that the general consensus is that Jesus was a special prophet or a fulfillment of prophecy or a sign of the coming age. The popular ways of thinking about Jesus was seeing him as a symbol or a sign or an idea or a concept or some world view. And for many back then, and even for today, the sum total of who Jesus is is exactly that, the embodiment of some ideal, abstract idea of truth, of beauty, of love. He was like a prophet who said some powerful things, disrupted the religious establishment. He was a wise sage who spun spun homemade philosophy and wisdom for the masses. Or he was a religious zealot who died for a cause that he believed in. There are so many popular ways of understanding who Jesus is and was, and many of them very charitable. If you're to do a Google search and find, you'd find hundreds of quotes, and I'm just going to highlight three here, which I think are really charitable ways of talking about Jesus. Um, the first is from H.G. Wells. I am a historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. And another quote from Napoleon Bonaparte, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person on the, on the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But what was the foundation? Uh, did, what foundation did we rest the creations of our genius? <laughs> upon force. Jesus Christ founded an empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. And a quote from Al, uh, Albert Einstein, I am a Jew, 
but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Theseus or other heroes of this type lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. These opinions about who Jesus is are all very, very, very charitable and good. But what Jesus is doing here in this story is that he's pressing a little bit harder. He turns to his disciples and he asks them this very, very personal question, what about you? What do you think? Who do you say that I am? And this question is disruptive because what Jesus wants is he wants his disciples to have more than a generalized idea of who this Jesus is, but he wants them to have this gripping personal revelation of who Jesus is that gets at the core, at the core, at the core of our being. Who do you say that Jesus is? There comes a moment in our lives when we have to answer that question for ourselves, sift through all of the data, all of the noise, all of the things that other people have been saying, and answer that question for ourselves. And for Peter, he said, you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus, you are the Messiah the long-awaited, holy one of Israel, the anointed one, Jesus. You are more than the many sons of God. You are the son of the living God. You are the one who was with God at the beginning of time. You are the one who was with God, who created all things, that all things were created through you and for you, and that nothing was made without you, that all things have been made in and through you and for you. You are are the one with God and who is God. Jesus, you are God himself. You are the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. You are the word that has been made flesh. You are the one who seeks and saves the lost, the one who serves and gives his life as a ransom for many. You're the one who saves us and heals us from our disease. You died for our sins. You raised from the grave. You conquered the powers of sin and death and evil. This is who you are, Jesus. You are the Son of the living God, making all things new. This is not some tame, quiet, intellectual profession about who Jesus is that keeps him at an arm's length distance. But this profession will shake you to your core. It'll wake you up from your sleep. It'll rattle around in your conscience. And it's the profession that will ultimately loosen the grips of idolatry in your life. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I came across this quote from C.S. Lewis that I found very refreshing, and I want to share this with you in talking about how 
God can sometimes be this impersonal force, but really it's a personal God that we meet in Jesus. He says this, It's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry. It's alive. And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceed no further with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, husband, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who have been playing at burglars hush silently. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling with religion suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him. We never meant for it to come to that. We're still supposing he had found us. And so what about you? What do you say? Who do you say that Jesus is? What is the gospel according to you? Just as much as there is the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, descriptions and stories about who Jesus is and articulating that for the world, what is the gospel according to you, to Sam? I'm not going to get into the full story, but I was very much challenged one day to make this declaration anew. And it wasn't way back when, when I first discovered Jesus for the first time, but it was in the middle of my seminary studies as I was studying to be a pastor. (laughs) I was going through some very challenging personal issues and things that were happening in my own life, and I was also finding a disconnect with stuff that I knew and stuff that I was learning. It was a very, very challenging time, and it came to a point where I was like, you know what? I think I am done. I think I don't want to do this Christian thing anymore. I don't think I want to do this anymore. And, I, and when I really considered the possibility of just calling it quits, finishing studies, no longer in ministry, leaving the church, leaving faith altogether, I was reminded of this story. It just, it just came to my mind as I was sitting there in the atrium of Regent College. And it was a story of when Jesus was walking along, and there's this huge crowd that's following him. And he turns around to this crowd, and he gives them a very hard saying, a very difficult saying. And many of the people who were following Jesus turned around and walked away. And when Jesus saw this crowd, he saw Peter standing there. And he says to Peter, Peter, are you also going to leave me as well? To which Peter says, where am I to go? You have the words of eternal life. Where am I to go? 
you have the words of eternal life. And at that moment, I found myself in Peter's shoes being asked by Jesus, Sam, are you too going to leave like so many others have left? And I found myself answering like Peter, Jesus, where am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go? I've searched the different religions, and I found them wanting. I've searched different philosophies and found them meaningless. I've lived a life of pleasure, and I found that empty. Where am I to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And if I did go somewhere else and I left, what would that say to all the ways that you have revealed yourself good and faithful and the ways that you worked in my life and the life of others? I'd be throwing all of that out the window. Jesus, where am I to go? You have the words of eternal life. It was like the Holy Spirit was reminding me that day of all the ways that God was gracious to me, reminding me of all the reasons why I found Jesus so compelling and why I decided to follow him many, many years ago. And maybe you might be in a place like that today where you're wondering, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I don't know if I can follow Jesus anymore. But you need to hear again this call. Come and follow me and hear the words of eternal life. Jesus, you are Messiah, son of the living God. After Peter makes this profession, Jesus says in verse 17 and following, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was revealed to you not by flesh and blood, but by my, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Haiti will not overcome it. And this is the second and most equally important lesson that Jesus wants us to know about being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not just the identity of who Jesus is, but who Jesus says you and I are. And Jesus' response to Peter's profession is life-changing. First, he calls him Simon, Simon, son of Jonah. And then he calls him Peter. I tell you, you are Peter. Jesus calls Simon by this new name. And renaming Simon to Peter is one of the most loving things that Jesus can do for his disciples. Because when Jesus gives Simon a new name, Peter, he's changing the core of Simon's identity and changing this dominant narrative that is being lived out in Simon's life. You see, throughout the Bible, the person's name was more than the name that you were to be called. It was like an imprint of who you are and who you were as a person. It was kind of like a mini personality profile character. And yes, Simon in Hebrew means to listen, but many interpret Simon to also mean shifting sand. And so Jesus acknowledges that Simon is like shifting sand. He's a little unstable. He's a little unpredictable, a little unreliable. But he gives Simon this new name, this new identity. I tell you, you are going to be called Peter, Petros, Rock, Firm, Strong. Simon, you might not be much now, 
But because of your profession in me, you will be Peter. You will be like rock. I love that part of Peter's story. Because in that we see Jesus calling something greater in his disciples than what we can presently see at the present time. And what Jesus is seeing is he's seeing each and every one of us as disciples and he's seeing the potential that is in us and wanting to bring out the best in us, not the worst. He sets before us a new trajectory of our lives, one of increasing beauty and increasing strength and wisdom, and he calls us to be fully alive in who we were meant to be and become. Being a disciple of Jesus is not something that ties us up or binds us down or makes us feel less than who we were created to be, but rather called to who we are truly meant to be in him. And this was the case for Peter, for Simon Peter. Throughout his life, as a disciple of Jesus, he was a little bit volatile. <laughs> One minute, he's a man full of faith and confidence. The next moment, he's despondent and weak. One moment, he's wild and spontaneous. The next moment, he's cowering in a corner. But the overall trajectory of his life is one of long, restorative arc of Jesus calling and working out his calling in him. Yes, Peter, slow to learn, failed time and time again, but eventually tr entrusted with more responsibility, demonstrating that he was mature and capable. Peter was a work in progress. And this is good news. It's good news. Because you and I, we are a work in progress. God is not finished with us yet. All of the sharp edges are being rounded off. All of the rough cuts of the diamond that is your life is being polished. God is transforming you more and more into someone who, like Peter, is strong and dependable, capable, reliable, a man full of faith and confidence. This is what Jesus saw in Peter, and I think this is what he sees in you Turn to the person next to you and say, you are a beautiful work in progress. <laughs> Some of us can say work in progress, okay, but the beautiful part, I'm not sure, but I don't know. It's true. I think it's true of my own life. And I have to say, I really don't like to admit this out loud, but quite frankly, and I'm a little bit embarrassed, and as I look upon you guys, I see many smart and intelligent people, and, and I have to say, I was not a very good student. I was a C average student at best in high school. I didn't read much. I didn't study much. I really cared more about what other people thought of me as opposed to what I needed to do for myself and what I needed to do for, for growth and what G God was calling me to, to be. And so I managed to squeak by high school and get to high school graduation, which is why I found it totally surprising when I won an award. I, and at my high school uh, graduation, uh, I got this award. It was called the Ken Phillips Award. 
and it was a sports reward that my rugby coach had given to me and selected for me. And this award was not for the best player on the team, but the most improved player on the team. <laughs> hey, but it's an award nonetheless. So I went up there and I got that award and I was like, sweet, that's awesome. I came back, I sat down with my parents and my parents were just like a little bit shocked. Whoa, you got an award. We went home later on that day and I just remember my mom just kind of saying in, in this like uh, <laughs> kind of stunned amazement or wonder and she turns to me and says, Sam, you're a late bloomer. <laughs> Thanks, mom. That's all right. Not bad. <laughs> You're a late bloomer. <laughs> I always kind of saw myself as the underdog, as the person who doesn't measure up or isn't good enough. And, and like Peter, I kind of saw myself a little bit volatile, a little bit spontaneous, but somehow, somehow, God took a hold of my life and he called me not only to himself, but he called me into this ministry. And honestly, when I look back over my life, I can say, you know, <laughs> I, I wasn't a very good pastor. And certainly not a very good leader. So many character flaws, you, if you only knew. <laughs> but over time, I continued to lean into that, to trust in his calling. I grew as a person and maturity. Maybe that comes with being a little bit older. But I can't say that I have arrived yet. But today as I stand, I look back over my life and I can say I think I'm a little bit better than I was 15 years ago. And that is good news, my friends. This is the gospel of Peter's life. The work of God's grace being at work in your life. That's not finished yet. You are a beautiful work in progress. And so Jesus calls you just as you are to become more than who you were in the past, to join him on a mission that outlasts the sum total of who we are. And that's the third lesson of discipleship that we're learning here today. Because Peter's new identity is a new mission that's given to him and a new people that he belongs to. We hear Jesus saying to Peter, I tell you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on in heaven. What is Jesus saying here? What is Jesus building here? What is he saying to Peter? He's saying, in Peter you are a rock, and I will build my church church. Now, I'm not going to get into all of what Jesus is saying here because if there's a lot of questions, if you're like me, you have a lot of questions about what Jesus means, like who is the rock? Is it Peter that the, that's the rock? Is Jesus the rock? Is Peter's profession of Jesus? Is that the rock in which the church is being built? And then what about the language of the keys of the kingdom and binding and loosing on, 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 on earth and, and in heaven? What does all of this mean? But you know, we can follow all of the rabbit holes, but I think the main point here is that Jesus is making, what Jesus is making is that through his disciples, 
Jesus is establishing a community of people centered around him who are a force of good, pushing up against evil, and who's a signpost of the kingdom of God breaking here on earth. That is the church. That is the church. That is what he's building. And the main reason why I say this is this word that Peter uses. It's ecclesia. Say it with me. Ecclesia. Ecclesia. It means a calling out or an assembly of people. It's often used in the political context in the first century to mean a group of citizens that would gather together to have political discourse and to engage in public life. And I like that word because what it says about the church is that the church is more than just a gathering of people who need to feel good about ourselves and to actualize our own personal dreams and ambitions, but the church is a gathering of people who have an agenda, who have a purpose, who have a mandate to fulfill. Sometimes we do that in small ways. Sometimes we do that in large ways. Sometimes we do that by affirming the things in culture. Sometimes we do that by challenging the things in culture. Always as a way, uh, uh, sometimes always doing that by, always uh, uh, seeking to influence culture. Sometimes we do that overtly or subversively. Now, I'm not trying to say that the church needs to be on a political agenda. I certainly am not saying that. But I am saying that some of us need to see the church that Jesus is building as a force of good, a signpost of the kingdom of God, a foretaste of this union of heaven and earth. And that is the mission that we are being invited to join Jesus in, to be a people on mission. I love this quote from Leslie Newbegin. He says, the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is, on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. I love that as a reminder that the church needs to be a force for good. And I know at some places and sometimes, church doesn't always have that kind of message. And as I was even thinking about responding to this call and hearing this call to be a pastor at, you know, Tapestry Monday Park, I wrestled with that. I spent 10 years as a chaplain at a youth custody center, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, partly because it was outside the church. But I knew one day that God was going to call me back into church ministry. I thought it was going to be when I was 50 or 55 or 60 or something. It seemed to have come earlier. But as I was thinking and praying and discerning, is this what you're wanting to call me into? I had two prayers that I asked Jesus. I said, Jesus, if you want me to be a pastor here, then you're going to have to, one, give me a vision because I can't do it without a vision of your kingdom that's bigger than what I can ever imagine. And the second thing that you're going to have to do is that you're going to have to give me a love for your church, to love your church. And what I meant by that is, yes, 
Love your church as the people gathered together. And all of you who are gathered together, we are the church. And that's sometimes easy to do, maybe harder for other times, but to love people, yes, but to love the institution of church. To love both the organism of church and the organization of church. To love being together shoulder to shoulder with men and women of all different backgrounds to pursue the mission of God together, whatever that's going to look like in our context, to love the church and to be on mission. That's that final lesson of discipleship, that God is calling every single one of us to join him in that mission as God's people. Okay, I'm going to call it quits. I have this image, but I'm going to pray. I think you got it. I hope you got it. If not, we're a work in progress. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we bless you and thank you. We thank you that you have come to us in the person of Jesus to reveal yourself to us in the fullest, most uh, most possible way that we can imagine. And when we see you, we see the glory of God. We see the humanity that is affirmed in us, and we see the newness of our humanity being worked out in us through you. And so I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would come upon us, that you would set a new trajectory in our lives, help us to profess you as Lord, to follow you as King, to have our lives changed by you and to be an agent of this change in your kingdom here on this earth. Show us how to do that. Lead us along the way. We bless, uh, bl uh, we, we, yeah, we bless you and thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.